Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? This is a Germany special. I am once again joined by a special guest. I have with me Andrew Kenrick, a former Games Workshop editor of White Dwarf, managing editor of Cubicle 7 and now expert freelancer. How are you doing Andrew? I'm great, thank you. Here in Berlin, joining you. Cool. Uh, so we've had an excellent time. We've just been to the Kraken Gaming Retreat, isn't that correct? And I think we can say that it's probably the best, I hesitate to call it convention because Fabian will tell me off, but it's the best gaming experience that we've, this is in the gaming convention calendar for us, I think. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, yeah, I've been to a variety of conventions worldwide and uh, the Kraken takes it to the next level. It's it's everything you want in a gaming convention. There's good food, good beer, good um, company and great games, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So what I thought we'd talk about a little bit first, perhaps, is um sort of what makes it so good you probably summarized for us there but we can probably drive into a little bit more detail so one of the things that first put me off about going to a foreign uh, convention or event of sorts was the the worry of getting there but i think um the kraken and former the tentacles team do a good job of this in that if you can get to an airport or a train station they come and get you so that like a lot of the worry of traveling abroad sort of taken away yeah, I think it's always one of the dangers, isn't it, when you're in a foreign country and you don't necessarily speak the language. It's, well, how do you get to where you're going? But actually, I mean, Germany is very accessible to most of us because they speak better English. But also, <laughs> it is um, the cracking team always bend over backwards, don't they? They'll either pick you up from the airport or they'll uh, pick you up from the station and... I mean, it's Kraken is in the middle of nowhere and it's in quite a beautiful countryside. Not a problem. I've had harder to get to conventions in England than I have in Germany. No, that's very true. I think one of the advantages it's got as well um, for a space built at town there is, is everybody seems great, obviously. Uh, but you've got people like Remy, who just work like a dog all weekend, one of the French guys who run Sumerians. Uh, and then sort of uh, Nico and Lisa and, and several of the people who were never actually part of a committee or anything like that, but just as fans of going to these sort of events, turn up and, and run it on a volunteer basis, which I think gives it that extra when you've got people who are willing to do stuff just because they want to do it and think it's great. That obviously helps better than trying to find volunteers or pay people to do it. You know, yeah. so I think com- I mean, conventions are always built on the back of their volunteers, really, aren't they? And uh, a good set of volunteers, a good team of volunteers can make or break a convention and crack and Kraken's volunteers are just exceptional. They will bend over backwards to help you, whether it's um, to help you find your game or to help you find a beer or because you've not checked into your hotel and it's midnight in East Germany, whatever, they <laughs> they will sort out your problem. And that's just, it just makes a difference, doesn't it? And it helps it make it uh, just run far more smoothly than it might otherwise do. Yeah, and I think we're not saying this is exclusive just for the Kraken. So, for example, at Seven Hills, Dr. Mitch is very good at helping you out. Graham Spearing at Furnace always makes sure that he says, you know, we'll, we'll help you with whatever you've got. But uh, I think with the Kraken, it's got that special thing in that there seems to be an ethos amongst everyone wants to help everybody else. That's, and it seems really prominent, which helps out quite a lot. And everyone seems del- uh, delighted to see you as well. I mean, we've, we've gone... Well, actually, you've been going for years, haven't you? Yeah. I've gone for the last three years. And it's actually really nice when you see someone new there because you kind mm. of you kind of delight in... Um, sort of want to help them yeah, out and, and, and just them welcoming to the experience it's kind of like oh well done you've discovered the crack and it's and I mean, <laughs> and I mean that kind of sincerely it's like yeah. oh, actually it's quite exciting there were quite a lot of new people, new people there this year and that's really that's quite exciting to see for a convention as well because obviously any convention that relies on old you know, old dogs all the time is going to slowly dwindle and die but actually the Kraken every year we've been it's got new people and that's quite exciting and I mean from all nationalities there were yeah, it was really curious. We had like there's three guys turned up from Malta, and it's like how I don't know how they heard about the crack, I don't know yeah. where this came from, but they decided to make the pilgrimage. And there's like a guy from Australia, and or more than one Australian. Bizarre the the places people have come from from something that's not necessarily that well advertised compared to say, for example, an expo or a spiel or something like that. And I always take great 
pride when a when a, another Brit come, turns up because I mean Brits are famous for being reluctant to travel abroad and I mean gaming especially gaming abroad I mean that's, that's <laughs> and that probably put me off for a long time was kind of that assumption that you're going to have a hard time gaming in a foreign language mm. because that's not true at all is it not at all in fact everybody speaks really good English uh, and you can just run the games in English to be honest. I don't I think initially the first couple of Krakens there were some German only games that ran but I think pretty much this weekend everything was an English run game which yeah there was I, I was sitting I was prepping for one of my adventures near a table that had they were running in German but I get the impression that if you if I joined that table and um, they'd have switched seamlessly into English yeah and no one seems to resent that it doesn't seem to be a problem it's not no. I mean, it's a German gaming convention or gaming retreat but um, <laughs> that's not to say it's in German. No. And yeah. English is the lingua franca or lingua England or however, <laughs> yeah, however exactly. you would say it. But yeah, it's the common language, isn't it? No, I've had exactly the same thing. Uh, it does get amusing when you go to the bar sometimes and people seem relieved they can speak German for a little while while you're away. And then, but then they do switch back again once you've come back to the table. So that, that's quite good. Um, and it seems like it's common language as well, isn't it? Because you've also got like Norwegian people there, Finns, Belgians, Swiss, like just the whole gamut of Europe yeah. and beyond. So. So people aren't just speaking English because the English are there. It's because it's a it's melting that... pot of Europeans, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Which is great to see, actually, because you get a lot of people, uh, you get that mix, multicultural mix that you, um, I'm not saying you don't get a British gaming convention, but it's a different mix, isn't it? Because, mm. of course, Europe is so much more accessible for the Europeans. I mean, a lot of them have driven across from Belgium or Germany, or yes. uh, and they wouldn't necessarily make the trip back to England. Although it'd be quite nice to, I think, quite a lot of them were talking to us about which British conventions to go to, weren't they? And yeah, they were, actually. Actually, it'd be quite nice to see some of them at Games Expo, or Dragon Meat, or even Furnace, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Did you notice amongst any of the um, individuals you played with any differences or anything special about uh, the way they played? So, uh, for example, uh, the, the Germans quite often have this like, leather cup that they roll the dice in, which I hadn't seen, but, it, but that seems to be like the... They almost look at you like, why haven't you got a dice cup? <laughs> because everybody in Germany seems to have one. Yeah, definitely. Um, I definitely remember the dice cup. I remember that from the first time at Tentacles, actually. Yeah. That's, a, that's definitely a common thing, isn't it? So did you have um, like, did you have one of the guys from Moultrie in one of your games or anything like that? Or I did. I had um, um, a lovely chap called Elton was in one of my games. He played in one of my Delta Green games on the Saturday evening. And he played a very tough, talking, straight-laced soldier who'd seen too much and was you know, out to put things right. And he did the... He'd never played Dutch Green, he'd never played Call of Cthulhu before, and he got straight into it. He was, yeah, his, you know, accent and everything, it really fitted. Uh, yeah, you know. I think, did you get Charlotte in one of your games as well? He was another one who just sort of seemed to jump straight into character. Yeah, absolutely. Charlotte was in, uh, she, yeah, she was in character from the second I gave out the character sheets. She was 100% in character. She was discussing with the players how they'd know each other, you know, and it, was, it wasn't just theoretical either. It was straight into, I did this, I did this, I know you because of this. It's great to see, and I mean, that's, that's always true. I always find gaming conventions really revitalizing as a uh, writer and as a gamer it's um uh, being ex uh, exposed to an awful lot of different play styles and different gaming styles and different gamers and that's true for any convention that's a european gaming convention a german gaming convention i think that's even more true because you're because different cultures must have different um backgrounds and cultures of gaming mm. so i know germany's got a very strong gaming culture that doesn't necessarily always overlap with ours and France is the same and it's just interesting to see people who have got into games via a different route to Dungeons and Dragons or Warhammer Fantasy Royal play as we might expect in Britain um, coming to the table with different expectations and different play styles and it's um, I mean it's testimony to how broad-minded gamers are in general that that can all be um, accommodated at the same table. Yeah it's cool I think the only <laughs> I just remembered now a bit of language the only time I get a bit of German is normally um, the smaller game is called Stefan is quite excitable 
he speaks quite fast, but uh, if we play a Pendragon, he's on lots of D6 and he gets a big number. He gets super excited about adding it all up and then just shouts, Zweifelfiersisch! At me. And then <laughs> and sees my expression and goes, 42. I'm like, okay, good. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I've not found any problems with overlapping. Like I had um, a Swedish guy in one game when I was playing Tales from the Loop, which is a game in set in Sweden. And he actually lived on the islands at one point. Oh, so yeah, because you put your most worrying. Obs- you put your particularly obscure part of the map, haven't you? Yeah. Where um, no one could possibly have come from. <laughs> but there he was. And uh, as always, you pick someone there. But, you know, obviously he was happy to back me up on things I said and all the rest of it. Yeah, really good melting pot of people and different ideas and approaches, but that all just gives you a bit more interest at the table, right? Because you get something a little bit different than you would at a typical English convention where you perhaps know quite a few people because we've been around that circuit for some time now. So you get used to certain patterns of behaviour and the way people talk and certain individuals as well. So Yeah, and, there's the, and there is the danger when you are very familiar with a convention. Uh, cliques can form and people can end up falling into, not necessarily out of any um, uh, maliciousness or anything like that, but just it's just convenient sometimes to fall into the same gaming groups. Yeah. Or just... Um, it's just nice to catch up with friends. But when you're at a, a convention in Germany, I mean, we, we do know quite a lot of people there now. Mm. But that's only because we, we've been quite a few times. But because there is new blood coming in and everyone is so welcoming. I mean, I didn't play in the same... I did play with quite a few of the same players over the course of the weekend. But uh, it was always a different gaming group. It was always a different uh, mix. It was always a different kind of ethos at the table, really. Every one of my games felt different. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I played Tales from Luke three times and then or ran it three times. Um, and... It was mostly different players throughout, and each time it ran, it was a completely different game, which you can expect from the same scenario. But having such a mix of players meant that there was a much greater chance that you get that extra variety at the table as well, which is quite cool. It was, it was interesting, actually, in terms of talking about different types of game, the um, mix of games this year was particularly vibrant, I thought. Mm. I know um, traditionally, certainly Tentacles before and Kraken now, uh, they've had a leaning towards Pendragon, RuneQuest, uh, Hero Quest, and Call of Cthulhu. And I mean that's a, that's always been a great foundation for them to backbone. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but this year, I noticed there been there were some really quite out there games like Ten Candles was running. You were running Tales from the Loop. Yeah, I was running Delta Green. There was all sorts of different things, and people seemed to be as up for it as they would at any other any other game. Really, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Ten Candles one was interesting. I think Matt ran that twice as well, and yeah, that definitely. was in the in the chapel. So at the Schloss, they've got an old chapel which is quite cold at night and dark, uh, and yeah. Playing in there with uh, just the ten candles lit was very atmospheric. Apparently. I bet that was terrifying when the last candle the last went out. Couple, yeah. <laughs> I gather that was quite an amazing experience. Actually, the the players I talked to afterwards who'd had that, who'd played that game, I think they were, yeah, they'll be talking about that for a long time. I think, and who can blame them if they're in the chapel? Yeah, and that's, I think that's one of the advantages of the venue, right? Because other places you might have a pub or it's normally a sports hall or some other thing like that. But having a, a genuine, authentic old uh, manor house, I'll call it rather than castle, but you know, a good venue really adds to the the rest of it. Like they've got um, some arched vaulted ceiling cellars underneath as well, where they have the beer testing and various other things. But yeah, and even the um, like places like the guest house where the breakfast is served when you play in there, because it's kind of out in the it is out in the woods, isn't it? I mean, mm. uh, and you've got the kind of lake down the, out the window, and it's dark outside, and it just adds to the atmosphere. And of course, playing in the Schloss where you've got the you know big high ballrooms almost, aren't they, with beautiful wooden floors, and it just it all just adds to it, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, we have some great gaming conventions in the furnace, for example, don't we? With when you're playing in a old garrison and stuff like that. But yeah, I think playing in a castle takes some beating. Yeah. So um, you've mentioned some of the games I've played, and so have I. But you said you've taken Delta Green. So while I had a bit more variety, you went for one particular game. What What was your thinking behind just having that choice? Oh, it was purely laziness. I'm to say <laughs> it. it was the fact I only wanted I only wanted to pack one role play game uh, in my luggage. Right. Gotcha. And I chose Delta Green because. It's uh, 
the game I'm into at the moment. I quite enjoy the new edition of it. Uh, I ran it. I ran the intro scenario last convention actually, and it went down really well. And it kind of I'd originally thought it was uh, because it's it's Call of Cthulhu um, sibling cousin. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I thought originally it would be quite a easy to smuggle easy in sell, and, and, yeah. and, and, and sell people on. And actually, it went down really well last year. Um, and I thought, well, actually, we'll try that one again. I maybe overcommitted a little bit. I did end up running it five times. <laughs> and then the, one of the two games I actually played was a Delta Green game as well, by coincidence. Creature of habit. Yeah, exactly. But the Kickstars kicked out some great scenarios. The, the Art Dream guys have done a really good job of uh, pumping out a lot of support. In fact, while we've been here, another another scenario's dropped into my inbox. If I was still at the cracker, maybe I'd have run that. But, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was good fun. And I tried a different approach this year in that I... I ran five different scenarios, uh, but I used the same characters for each. I used the same set of characters, and it was quite quite fun. That you had that camaraderie of you know when you've got players that have played in the same game or with the same GM or played the same scenario, you've got that talking point, haven't you? Where they yes. go, oh, what did you do in that bit? What did you do in that bit? And it was quite nice to see because uh, I gave out the character sheets with some gaps into terms of gender and names. Uh, and and uh, the players had a lot of customization, but it was great to see when, when they go, oh, you were the female version of that character. Oh, I played the male version of that character. Oh, mm. oh, oh, you were the scientist. You were the soldier. And it was that's that's always quite a nice talking point because having some shared experience. Yeah, right? yeah, definitely. Yeah. And they love and players love to obviously talk about their characters, but they also love to kind of compare notes almost, don't they? Yeah. What did you do in that bit? Because we did. I played in your Tales of the Leap game on Wednesday night, I think it was. That's right. And yeah. then you ran the same scenario later in the convention, and that was fun talking to players who were in in. The same scenario, going. Well, how did you solve that? What did you do with the echo chamber? It's kind of you compare, you kind of um, swap stories almost. Don't yeah, you? yeah, yeah. Oh, you talk to the so and so. Oh, you, your, your character did this, and it's that's, yeah. That's it, a... it gives people something else to talk about throughout the convention as well, and get a bit more buzz going. And yeah, it's just a great talking point. So for Delta Green, I've obviously been um, interesting Cthulhu Seventh. That's sort of where I've been going, and, and really like that system and sort of the pushing roles, luck mm-hmm. stuff like that. How would you think Delta Green compares to? Well, not directly compared to seventh, but if you were going to run that sort of game, like Delta Green, I love for the background and all that kind of thing. I think I probably lean towards running it seventh. What What would you think about the Delta Green system changes or the way that runs differently? Is, is it worth it? Is or is it just a preference choice? That... I mean, considering I'm a games designer, I'm a little bit of a purist when it comes to running games. I like to run a game as is. So I will, if I've got a Delta Green rulebook, I'll run it in Delta Green. I would never, have, I would never consider running it seventh edition. Don't ask me why. That's just how I am. It does actually, it it does lack some of the features that um, players, I think, have come to expect from seventh edition now, uh, in terms of like pushing roles, yeah. spending luck. But in other respects, guys have done quite a good job. It's, it's very, it feels very streamlined. The I've run, run it from for the most part on the, over the weekend out of the uh, the quick start rules. Right. I found they're quite robust. Um, it, it it makes for it makes combat is quite uh, a lethal, but also be fast paced. There's players have a, a very wide uh, selection of tactics they can do. There's an awful lot of actions you can do in combat beyond just shooting. And mm. um, when the guns come out, which they inevitably do in a dark screen game, the um, there's some great stuff to for handling like lethality and uh, that sort of things for dangerous weapons. It's a very dangerous system. Um, and I really like the way the sanity works in Delta Green, where they've gone a slightly different direction, where you, you have different types of sanity. You've got you can lose sanity to violence or helplessness or the unnatural, uh, and different things cause different losses. Uh, and and you can become immune to sanity loss from violence, for example, if you overly brutal yourself, and then you find yourself turning into this cold-blooded killer, and it's quite interesting. And they also um, uh, they've introduced ways to mitigate sand loss, where you can you have a series of bonds, which I think is something we've seen in some of the other. I know Call of Cthulhu 7th to a certain extent has them, and I know games like Hot War and 
cold city than like of of used them where you've got these kind of physical things or usually people who your character holds dear and gets them through adversity yeah and you can uh, spend willpower to reduce your bonds uh, sorry to reduce sand loss in the heat of the moment but at the cost of long-term damage to your bonds so you might get through this san- uh, sanity shaking experience by thinking of the memory of your wife or your children but then later after the mission when you get back home to your children you can do nothing but shout at them or, yeah. so you see how it affects the whole life of yeah, the agent definitely. And how on this spiral downward of yeah and i think more than seventh edition i can see delta Green working very well as a campaign i think it's that that spiral within the you know within the, each player and within the group into darkness in a way is really baked into it which is something you don't get to see in a convention i do i do try and uh, pick at the home aspect of it i always start the game when they're at home and having to make excuses for going on another mission mm. And sometimes we'll finish up with a home scene as well, where it all kind of all comes back round again. It's a way of humanising the characters, isn't it? So they're not yeah. just, you know, murder agents who can go out and burn Yeah, exactly. Which, yeah, which is the danger with any sort of game where you're proficient and you're armed and you're... It, it can sometimes uh, reduce the horror of the mythos mm. by making it something you can confront and deal with. That's not the case with Delta Green. I think they've done a really good job of baking that in. I mean, we've not seen some of the real mythos stuff from it that's because we're, we're eagerly awaiting the next book for that yes uh, but certainly the scenarios that they've put out have, have been challenging in different ways i mean the intro scenario i ran i've run a couple of times now at kraken and it, it it's a very simple scenario but it boils down to basically an argument over what you should do with well i don't want to spoil anything on the podcast but uh, what you should do with quite a complex situation and uh, we played it on the, it was the very last game i ran and it turned into about two-hour conversation and that can sound very dull but it was a very tense conflict and there was a lot of meat just to that one situation yeah and there's a, there was another scenario around earlier in the weekend um uh, caligati and again that ends it, the whole way through your your fairly heavily armed soldiers and a lot of the f- conflicts in that scenario get dealt with with guns but there's a really nasty twist and again i don't want to say too much mm. which makes the players and the gm think very hard about what they do and it just makes it's just cle- very cleverly done i found delta greens so far certainly for this edition, has been very cleverly written and very cleverly designed when it could have easily slipped into a, oh yeah, we've got guns now, we're going we're to shoot, shoot the cultists and then shoot Cthulhu. And it's not the case at all. So it's a very, it's actually a very different game, I think, that's the edition. It's kind of got its own way. I think that's probably important for it to actually make a mark, isn't it? Because it was just going to be modern day Cthulhu then. Yeah. Why bother? But I also remember you noting that you've managed to pull some of the other rules out of the bag, although you used the quick start, you managed to, in fact, twice you had to pull out the ramming rules. Yes. <laughs> and requisition got used quite a bit as well. So it's got some extra bits and pieces there that you perhaps don't get in your Yeah, absolutely. Think. I mean, yeah, definitely. And, and yeah, it's testament to how robust that rule set is that when I was, when I needed to find out how much damage a, I think it was a U-Haul truck did uh, <laughs> when driven into a nasty creature. Or yeah. an unconscious agent. Or, or as, yeah, later on in, in, in the convention, an unconscious agent, the rules were there and very easy to. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't overly complex. Good. No, I, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a big Delta Green fan as well, so I'm looking forward to the the actual main book coming through, so we can I can run a bit more of it. And it was good. It was good to introduce players to it as well. There were a lot of players that were experienced with Delta Green that were long-time fans, but there's an awful lot of players that never played it at all, never heard of it, and they were very receptive towards it. And then actually, there were quite a lot of players that never played Call of Cthulhu, which I do still find slightly that's strange. Uh, yeah, it? unusual in this day and age, but is, yeah. yeah, but definitely. But it's great that players are up for it, and mm. at no point did anyone kind of balk at going full into it. I mean, they were very up for it. Yes. Yeah, I found that about most of the, the, the Krakeneers, for want of a better phrase, that they tend to be up for the game, whatever it is. If you do get sat at the table, then they will engage with that game, whereas I think sometimes at UK, I can't tell about it where people turn up because 
they can't find anything else or they just like the idea of the game but not too sure about it and play the system yeah. whereas um maybe it's the rather you know i'm not trying to say that something wrong with uk games or that european games are somehow better or whatever but it might just be that convention because of the length of time you're there and the effort to get there and a bit more investment that when you are there that people generally want to commit to the game that they're playing as well whatever it might be and i think possibly more than some conventions you're you're spending a lot of time with these people aren't you mm. because you're eating uh, quite often at a convention you're there for the gaming bit but maybe you've gone back to your hotel or to your off to get food with your friends but it's cracking you're it is a retreat, gaming retreat isn't it? it's a gaming residency you're, you're living on site and you're eating seven times a day with the, <laughs> yeah. with the people you're with. Every couple of hours. Every yeah. couple of hours, exactly. And actually, that, there is that camaraderie that builds. And I think, I mean, I certainly found that all the games that I ran, there was a real serious level of investment. And I don't mean that to the point of being po-faced, because we, we had some really great moments in the games. Mm. But everyone engaged with them on a very um, serious and adult level. And yeah, I wish I could say the same sometimes to like, my group at home or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, but seems to squeeze the most out of it. So, um, did you try any of the other activities? Because there's lots of like seminars that you can throw axes, shoot bows, uh, do free forms. Oh, there's all sorts of them going yeah. cracking, isn't there? No, I, I was this year. I was actually very focused on role playing, and not necessarily through choice, um, or rather through planning. I think the only activity I did, I, I did quite a bit of board gaming early on because uh, we got there a couple, of, a few days early actually, didn't we? Yeah, which yeah. is always an option with the crack, and you can you can usually get there from the Wednesday onwards. And we played a few of Sandy Peterson's board games. Mm, yeah, they're still playing test, aren't Yeah, I gather you talked to him about another podcast. Yes, there, there may well be a Smart Party podcast all about that. Yeah, so I don't want to give too much away. But uh, yeah, we played a few of his top secret playtest games, didn't we? Yeah, um, and I think that's that's all leads me into the kind of guests of honour. So although I didn't go to any seminars this time, which I've done. No, I didn't either, actually. Um, because, as you've mentioned, you sort of sit around and eat with people and all the rest of you. It's like... You quite often find yourself sat at a table next to Sandy Peterson, Ken Ralston, Mike Mason, you know, one of any of the list of other luminaries that there may be there at the time, uh, and just chat to them about stuff anyway. They all seem quite happy to sort of give you a bit of a skinny on what they're up to and, and just ideas on stuff generally. I think that level of access actually is something you just don't, you're not going to get anywhere else. I, I know the British conventions actually, they're probably a, a bit more open in that respect because they're smaller mm. and usually a bit more intimate. But certainly if you think of the guests of honour, Gen Con, I mean, you're only ever going to see them at a panel and maybe at a signing. You're certainly not going to be able to have dinner with them or have breakfast with them. And it's really real testament to Fabian and the crew, the, the quality of guests they get. I mean, some of the guests we had this year, we had um, Ken Ralston was there, Sandy Peterson was there. Uh, the Chaosium crew were there en masse, weren't they? I mean, it was a, a, a vast array of guests. Where, where else are you going to get Ken Ralston regaling you with tales of his gaming life over breakfast? Yeah, or um, Sandy Peterson coming and dragging you into one of his playtest games. Yeah, he was quite forceful about that, wasn't he? Oh yeah, I don't think you had a choice in the matter. You can't sit down for more than two minutes without him trying to make you play a game. No, no, but but that's great. In a good way, yeah, that's that's great. And they were that—that's that level of accessibility, and that they were eating and living and alongside you, and you're breathing the same rarefied air, aren't you? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And like, yeah, lunch and dinner a couple of times with some of the Casey guys with Mike and Lynn and. That was, yeah, it's great. It's really, it, it's really nice. To, there's certainly quite a few of them you want to spend a lot of time with. Like Ken is Ken's endlessly like, entertaining, isn't he? He is. I, I can only remember him from a couple of years ago, last time he was at the Kraken, um, and he had a unicorn's head on, like a full mask. Uh, and he had that on for about four hours because he was staying in character as Ralzacock, the unicorn brew. Um, uh, but, you know, he committed to it. And it was just, at the time, I hadn't had a chance to speak to him and I didn't really get my chance to that convention. So it, it was good to be able to come back and say, 
you know, speaks about this massive, like, because he did like Morrowind and all these other computer games and like iconic stuff, so he's been involved in Paranoia and all kinds of stuff. Again, there may be a podcast upcoming about this kind of activity. Oh, that'd so, be great. I'd really like to listen to that. Right, I'll, I'll see what I can do. I'll see if I magic one out of the air with a ritual or something. But it was good. And then he sort of regaled about that thing, experience he'd had out the Kraken as well. So it's good to get these guests as a repeat as well, because then you've got that shared bond across a number of years. And for new people, there's kind of this legend of, oh my God, last time he was here, he did this thing and it was really awesome. And then that, that gets him really fired up for what might happen this time round and that kind of thing. But another cool thing to do at the Kraken is they've got a horror lottery. So each of the guests of honour is kind of forced at gunpoint or actually just wants to run a game for other other people at the convention. So you get to basically do a, a bit of a bingo. You, you fill in cards for each of the games if you want to play one, stick them in a big hat and there's a bit of a tombola and you can happily, if you get pulled out, play with, Ken, Mike, Sandy, whoever, like one of the other guys in one of their like custom-built scenarios just for that convention. And they almost always are custom-built, aren't they? I mean, mm. uh, Sandy's games are always bespoke, aren't they? Never yes. to be run again or never to be never run before. I think Mike was running some games that were pre, you know, super sneaky previews from forthcoming Chaosium things. Jason was running a homebrew Pendragon set in the oh, Wild West. Lone game, Star, Lone yeah, Star, yeah. Texas Rangers, but yeah. using the Pendragon kind of ethos. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's some real... Exclusive stuff, wasn't there, that you can you can get involved with? Yes, you just don't get a sniff of anywhere else, do you? Just because of largely because of size of conventions and yeah. number of people and all that. Yeah, that that intimate it's partly that intimacy, isn't it? The partly the size of it, but it's also partly that friendliness of everyone that's there. Yeah, you kind of everyone wants to be involved and everyone's excited to be involved. Yeah, definitely. So, oh yes, that reminds me. One of the things because a lot of the guests were like dogs, you know. Certainly, you know, Ken and Sandy just barely had a minute to themselves. I think I saw Ken on the last day at the last slot and he was like, I just want to sit down and listen to your game because I don't want to play anything anymore. <laughs> like, just like, we work to the bone kind of thing. But Sandy also did his, his movie nights which you uh, attended. So he, he told me he brought seven great films. How, how was your evaluation yeah, Sandy, of that? I mean, it's subjective, I guess. Yeah, so. Sandy is a, well, I think he's a, a very famous connoisseur of, well, bad movies, but also <laughs> of horror movies. So every year Sandy always brings... It's usually a movie a night, actually. Mm. I think it started just one one movie, but nowadays he brings a movie it's a night, full, right? And then you get to choose, you know you get to pick which one you want to watch each night. And this year he was uh, very determined to have, bring a multicultural and international flavour. So I think he brought seven movies from seven different countries. Gather some of them were very scary, and some of them were very good. I had the pleasure on the first night. Uh, Sandy delighted in telling us it was the worst movie ever made. <laughs> and having watched it, I can't disagree. It was called <laughs> Shocking Dark, uh, alter, um, aka The Alienator, and it was a very bad 80s ripoff of both Alien and The Terminator at the same time, uh, set beneath the tunnels of Venice. Those famous tunnels. Those famous tunnels, yes, beneath the <laughs> waterlogged city of Venice. And it was awful, but in a very funny way, because actually, you're not just watching these bad movies, you've also got Sandy Peterson on hand commentating. And that's actually, do you know, that's priceless. You he's, can't buy that, can yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. He's, yeah. There's that's a, something you don't find on the DVD extras normally. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think some of these, I think some of these films would, uh, would benefit. Yeah, they'd benefit greatly if they got a Sandy Peterson commentary. Cool. Um, so yeah, that's that's like the the sort of main guest. But I think also we, we I sort of briefly brushed over some of the people. I think one of the guys I need to mention is Risto, one of the, the Finnish guys who drives down every time, like days it takes him, two or three days to drive down from Finland. And he always just loads of stuff. He never stops either. He's constantly there getting people to hurl access, axes or use an atle atle to throw spears at things or he's making pancakes. Or he's... Yeah, he's the world-famous axe thrower, isn't he? So they That's have, right. They always have a... Well, you can try throwing axes, which, of course, is a staple of Dungeons & Dragons. And 
I know you're you're a dab hand with the um, I'm quite double handed axe, aren't you? I, yeah. don't know if, I don't know if your listeners know that you're such a mean axe thrower. Yeah, I, I, I sort of I nailed the tomahawk this time as well. I was doing quite well with that. The normal hatchet I wasn't so good with, but a bit, but with a broader haft. And how uh, did you find the tomahawk? Uh, God, I, just, I think I just like the weight of it. I just got it. So I, I had a great time when I was uh, I was sat, stood with Kiri watching Mike Mason of Chaosium fame throw, and I don't know. He, he has a, he has a special skill. Um, I don't know how useful it is in the axe throwing world, but he managed to hit with the base of the haft every is time. He, so is, he, is he like me? Does he have weak editor's arms? That, that could be it. It's all about sitting at desk typing <laughs> with, or, a red or, with a red pen or something. <laughs> um, no, but he, he managed to hit with exactly the opposite end of the axe head all the time. So it's a it's a rare gift to throw that is, yes. different strengths and at different distances and always use the uh, the haft of the weapon to hit the target. So, uh, yeah, they were quite laughing at me, so I, I took great pleasure in stepping forward and... Oh, how do you use this tomahawk then? Thunk and <laughs> hitting the target <laughs> regularly. Um, but yeah, that's that's all part that again adds to that sort of camaraderie and stuff when people gather yeah, and, together and to chuck axes about and do something different you wouldn't normally do. And Risto had gone uh, above and beyond this year, hadn't he? He'd uh, provided a special gift for the Krakeneers, hadn't he? <laughs> he when had, he, yes. And he turned up fun with his uh, with his car packed to the gunnels and stuff, but also with a, a rather large box on the on the roof. Yeah, I'll try and remember. There's actually um, Toomey, one of the uh, the French guys, that he just again one of these sort of like volunteers who kind of spends his time videoing and taking photos and doing other stuff as well, um, so that we can get a better experience. Uh, he's done a little video and a you know, really sort of like um, B movie found footage kind of like bit antique looking video of this thing arriving with the car and. Yeah, R- Risto and and friends uh, produced some kind of crack and some monstrous entity. Which um, I can't, I can't really describe and do justice with. But the the owner of the sloss, or the, the guy who runs the the building itself, sort of said, "What are we going to do with this?" <laughs> As it unfolded from the roof of the car, it became clear it's quite yeah, large it's, and monstrous. Dare I say, life size? Perhaps <laughs> yeah. it, it was very very three D, wasn't it? It was designed to fit in the um, uh, one of the bay windows of the sloss, wasn't it? So it looked. I mean, it um, it did emerge a full two meters into the room. Yeah. If you wanted to go to the candy table. You did have to brave the beast, yes. And that was without half his tentacles, so I think God knows what would have happened if he had his legs as well. <laughs> but it's, yeah, yeah. Um, but that, that was just something he wanted to do, and he improved the game boards and various other things, so it's, it's great to see him. He, he does a lot of work as well. Yeah, Nick and Lisa mentioned were just like manning the info shrine, helping out, and Lisa particularly was good at troubleshooting, wasn't she? Like all kinds of weird and wonderful questions that come up when you're at a convention or a gaming event, and uh, as, a, as a punter, you've just got some issue that. No one can ever have foreseen, but you just kind of throw it at the guys, and uh, yeah, and it's always a it's, it's always a pleasure actually uh, when you get to run a game for one of those guys because you know how hard they're working. So it's quite nice to see like uh, with Nico and Lisa in my games later on on the weekend, and I know we board game with Risto a few times, didn't we? So it's, yeah, it's yeah. always great to be able to kind of show the love a little bit by by running games for those guys. I think one of the things that amused me was Nico was supposed to be running the beer tasting that happened one night. Um, so he said you had to kill him off because he was in your oh, yeah. game by yeah. 10 o'clock and then yeah. he got close to the time and he immediately reversed his decision and wanted to stay alive. Yeah, I was meant to kill him off in the first two hours so he could go to the beer, testing, uh, beer tasting. But yeah, when he got closer and closer to that time, he was like looking at me with a panic to look at me like, <laughs> saying, no, you don't need to kill me now. Well, you've already put the request in. Like, yeah, I don't what I can do now? I'd already set the wheels in motion. I suppose if there is a problem with the crack, and that sort of highlights it, that there's so much going on of various sorts that if you want to play games and do all the other stuff, you just there's going to be conflicts, and you kind of got to pick and choose a little bit. Like yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in past years, I've I have indulged and spent time uh, with the other activities and spent time axe throwing and attending all the seminars. But that means you then then don't get to play all the games. Whereas this time, I was running lots of games 
but I mean, I didn't get to go to any of the seminars. And it is, I mean, it's a four-day convention, but it still doesn't feel long enough. No. No, we, we, we chose poorly last week, didn't we? Last week, last year, uh, because of flights and such like that, we had to come back on the Sunday, and that just felt criminally short. Oh, we had a flying visit, and that was such a, yeah, such a shame, such wasn't a waste, it? Yeah. Whereas this year, we had nearly six days there, and it was great. <laughs> yeah. I fully recommend that as, a, as an option. <laughs> I know you said in the past that there's uh, the previous, uh, was it three or four years ago, the Kraken used to be spread over the best part of a week. Yeah, the the first one they did was a long one like we did this time, but I think um, due to you know people having families and various other things, it kind of got cut down a little bit. So it's good to see it sort of padding out a little bit more and giving that time because one of the reasons that the team wanted to do something like this rather than the tentacles short weekend was that because people are getting older and do have kids and other commitments and it's being able to go away for the best part of a week and not feel like you have to game in every single slot or do three games a day. You can kind of do one or two a day if you want. And then do other stuff or just chill out and relax and talk to people and have some like-minded folk around you can spend some time with without any pressures and that sort of thing. And certainly a good part of the, the way they organise it as well is that it's all free when you're there. So at the point of purchase, you don't pay for beer. You just go to the beer fridge and get more beer or wine or you know Coke or wherever else you want, coffees, orange juices. You get fed three times a day plus coffee and cake as well. I mean, yeah, It's been quite a wake-up call back in Berlin, hasn't it? These last couple of days where we've gone to... <laughs> Gone out for food and drinks and found ourselves having to pay at the end of it. I mean, yeah, that's it. I mean, you are you are completely spoiled at the crack, and it is, yeah, it's a great experience. The food is brilliant and it's plentiful, isn't yes. it? You're, there's, a, there's, not, there's not many conventions where at four o'clock you need to pause your game for ten minutes to go and get cheesecake. <laughs> <laughs> and you need to as well, don't you? <laughs> oh, you do. There would be a riot. You're you in danger of getting revolt. I think the only person um, that that differs is uh, Stefan, one of our voluble friends that goes and he's uh, he's sort of tried to uh, lobby for midnight soup which apparently is a, a German thing but it means like midnight snack but it's, it's kind of he says he's gone for like you know three hours but without food at that point and he kind of wants some extra food to be delivered for him and all the rest of it. Well they did achieve that on the last night didn't they? We had um, large amounts of cheese and sausage and bread well into the night. We did so- yeah no that's true. To soak up the apple wine. Yes that yeah mistakes were made. It was quite good that apple wine though. Yeah, it was a bit like cider, wasn't it? Quite a dry cider. A dry, flat cider, yeah. Cheese, the less said about that cheese, the better. It yeah. Tra- it was transparent and... It was this translucent... Yeah, very pungent. Hot, but yeah, it kind of went sweaty and less hard as time went yeah, on. Yeah, you told me it tasted like brie, so I would try it. And it didn't, <laughs> it didn't taste like brie, it tasted like foot. <laughs> but it amused me. That's one of those uh, one of those things, listeners, where um, you've you've had a sanity loss from experience in Cthulhu, and you tell all the other investigators need to come in and look at it. So <laughs> you want to share it as well. Yeah, yeah, so. Actually, there's always a, a certain uh, multicultural element to the Kraken in terms of food, isn't there? I remember past years where the Finns have brought um, rotted shark. <laughs> I was going to say brown cheese, but, but yeah. yes, no, rotted yes, rotted shark. Oh, no, sorry, it was, the, it was the Icelanders who brought the rotted shark and black death and things did like that. Did you try it? Yes, I did. And it's a horrific experience. Let me save both our listeners from making that mistake. The ammonia <laughs> hits the back of your throat and your body immediately says, this is poison, don't eat it, as you're trying to swallow at the same time. So you grab for the whatever percentage it is, clear alcohol of black death and gulp that down just to stop yourself being sick. But some say it's a delicacy, so I'll let you make your mind up. If you want, <laughs> don't want to heed my warning, that's fine. You can judge me as the person in the Cthulhu scenario saying, don't go to the mansion, you go anyway. But <laughs> on your heads and sanity be it. <laughs> So would you say there's any um, difference in game choices when you go to a convention like that? Would you think, I mean, obviously you've mentioned luggage alarms, 
But do you think there's anything that plays particularly well at that sort of convention or that you would want to take or perhaps something to shy away from with a different audience? I think traditionally, I've, I'd always say um, going for quite well-known games is a good idea because you can reduce... A, you can attract more more players because more people are going to be interested in your game and therefore you're going to have more happy customers. Uh, but also the less handling time in terms of complicated rules you can get away with at a convention. I mean, that's true for any convention, I think. Yeah. Um, and possibly doubly true when there's a, a potential language barrier. I think if people... I mean, Call of Cthulhu is fairly universal, isn't it? It's been translated into many languages. So I think something like Call of Cthulhu, where players instantly know how it plays, or, or alternatively, a game that's fairly light, or the rules don't come into it very much, because then you're not getting bogged down at the table. I'm not sure I'd want to run um, as accessible as it probably is in terms of people that know it. Something like Dungeons and Dragons that I mention, because there's a lot of rules handling which can sometimes slow things down. Yeah. Uh, and traditionally, I would maybe, would maybe have shied away from some of like the small press games that we've come to know and love over the last few years just because of unfamiliarity. But actually, it was quite gratifying to see quite a lot of small press games run this time, and I'm actually tempted next time to bring stuff like My Own Dead of Night or Polaris or... Um, yeah, you were talking about uh, Blades in the Dark at one point, right? Yeah, and there seems to be a lot of interest in it as well. Where I sort of regretted not having brought stuff for it because quite a lot of people were quite keen to try it. And, and I think that's the the thing I found at that particular convention. Uh, whereas perhaps uh, I know from UK cons, a lot of people look for system first as like what they want, might want to sign up for. Whereas at the event of the Kraken, when I'm saying this is what the game's about, people are like, oh, that sounds interesting. And nobody's saying, and what dice do I need? Or asking how complicated it is or what type of real system is it. They just want to know what the game's about and how are they able to hook into it. And then that, that's it, yeah. they're happy to go for it. Yeah, and quite often people have read the description but rather than the game title or the game system. Because I, I had players coming to the table and I said, oh, this is Delta Green, and they were not aware of that fact. They just, you know, they just, they just <laughs> Even read though the... it says Delta Green on the card. Exactly, the but they'd read the description and thought, oh, this scenario sounds really fun. Yeah. And that's quite, that's, that's quite eye-opening, isn't it, that people are willing to give things a chance. And it's probably the same. That's why Matt ran... Ten candles twice very successfully because players will have decided that sounds interesting and been up for it. I mean, yeah. I think that is true at a lot of conventions. Really, nowadays, I think players are a lot more up for stuff. I mean, that that traditional divide between that trad and small press that used to exist. I remember back in the day talking to you about that an awful lot. I don't know that that's gone. Now. It's eroded to a yeah. large degree, hasn't it? Yeah, and I think it helps as well that the 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 guys at the Kraken particularly and formerly Tentacles have played, well, a lot of them have played a lot of freeform and stuff like that as well. So as long as they know what their character's about and what they're supposed to be doing, they're happy to engage with that and then you tell them what dice to roll if they have to roll some or whatever else the mechanic might be uh, and they're happy to go with that. So yeah, that's all pretty good. So yeah, while well, I've got you, we mentioned seminars and stuff, but I, I unfortunately didn't get to any because I was running games constantly. Um, there was someone like writing guidance guidelines and how to write a scenario that sort of stuff so what what sort of advice have you got for people because obviously you've produced your own game dead of night which did quite well um, you've been an editor for white dwarf and managing editor for cubicle seven things like that so as a maybe as an editor but perhaps now as a, a sort of civilian gamer and stuff like that what sort of things do you look for in writing for games if someone wants to do their own stuff or thinking of contributing what, what would be good things so like rules of thumb to hold in mind maybe or oh well let's give you a a few off the top of my head. Keep it short and sweet. I think the time, the days of thousand page rule books have gone. Players and GMs do not have the time to spend that much time in games. They're spoiled in a way by, and, and rightfully so, that games like Apocalypse World, if they can present a quite a satisfying game experience in a very short space, why do people want to read a massive game? And I'm sure people will disagree with that, but that's one of the things I'm always keen on. 
if you're running, if you're writing games material, you should never forget that. I think it's easy to get bogged down in, when you're when you're writing either rules or background that you're writing for the sake of it. And there'll be an awful lot of people that will read stuff for the sake of reading it. There'll be players that, I know there are an awful lot of people that enjoy reading rule books, for example. But also, this stuff is meant to be, you're not writing a novel, this stuff is meant to be played in a scenario, I mean a scenario, that's true for a scenario, but it's also true for the um, rest of a book. It's there to be used in a game. Even if it never gets used, that is what it's, that is its primary it's purpose. purpose yeah. And I think it's obvious when you read a scenario that's never been played, because there'll be certain fundamental flaws in it. And, mm, and, yeah. And then that, that actually links in with the third thing, which is um, just something Jeff Tipple taught me uh, a few years ago, which is uh, when, it, when it came to board game design, but I think it's just as true uh, for scenario design and for, and for role-play games in general. And that is usually these books, when someone is trying to find information in the book, whether that's what happens next in a scenario or where the rules are ramming are, they're doing it in extremists. They're doing it in the worst possible situation when they've got six players around the table wanting to know what happens next. Yeah. And that you're busy, and you're the GM busy trying to find this information out without because no one wants to watch a person look through look something up in a book because that's boring. Correct. So therefore, you must you have to approach the book design, the game design, with that in mind. That and that's that could be good good indexing, but it can also just as easily be presenting that information in a short, succinct manner, or in a very clear to understand manner, so that when I need the ramming rules. It, 11 o'clock at night, I can find the ramming rules. That's um, Or when in the scenario I need to know what, uh, you know, when the villain makes his final move. Well, that's easy and graspable because I might have read it twice, but I'm now reading it at the table and all other thoughts have gone up my head. Six people shouting at you wanting to know different things all at the same time, yeah. Yeah, and also, always, whenever you're writing something, this is a bit of a, this is a, bit of a tough one, especially when people have spent their lives working on something, but ask yourself what you're doing differently. I think... Sometimes people are very keen to reinvent the wheel, and the wheel is there for a reason. It, it does what it does very well. So sometimes you've just got to ask yourself, well, why am I doing this? What is this bringing to the situation? And if it is bringing something new, and, and of course, most people are bringing something new to it because that's why we're creative. Make sure that's baked in. Make sure that is obvious. Make sure you're, you're being really upfront in what something does that's different. Yeah. Uh, if, to use an example from my own uh, game design, when I did the first edition of Dead or Night, uh, it started out as a very humdrum horror game it didn't do anything different but with my co-author we made it very laser focused on b-movie horror and, and campfire tales and that was something we brought out in the second edition so now when people say well what does this bring to the table why am i going to play this game and not call of cthulhu well you can point to well this call of cthulhu is for recreating lovecraft and mythos whereas this is for doing friday the 13th or movies like that yeah uh, and and so always have that in mind when you're writing it and i'm not saying don't necessarily that should, shouldn't stop you from writing it but that's certainly a consideration when it comes to publishing it or running it at a convention. It's, well, why are you using your why are you using a homebrew scenario or a homebrew rule set when one that everyone else around the table would know better might be just as good a fit? Mm. Yeah, I think it's good advice. I mean, one of the things that I didn't, as I say, I wasn't at the seminars, but one of the things I heard was that from the writing um, seminars, there seemed to be a bit of a lean towards writing for editors and what they wanted, which may have been due to the panel being more editors than writers. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and, um, and you ask five editors what they want in a thing, and they're going to say things that make their lives easier. And I'm not, no disrespect to the panellists. They're all very, very experienced um, editors and games designers and GMs themselves. But that is, that is, I think, the number one thing sometimes writers get wrong when they're writing, is what is this going to be used for? And it's going to be used for running a game. It's going to be used for entertaining five or six people around the table. 
and that's it's not it's not going to be used for people to read at home and and, <laughs> and get an evening's entertainment out of it. Obviously, although that can be a happy coincidence that people yeah, do that. But... And and obviously, if you can do all the things that make editors happy, then you're more likely to get published. But well, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can write very clean text, and writing very clean text will make both a GM and an editor happy. Mm. Uh, you know, writing a writing a game that does something very different and and gets people instantly on board because it's a unique idea. It's going to also make it's going to make your publisher delighted as well as excited GM. So I don't think they have to be ex- mutually exclusive, but you certainly shouldn't. You should never lose sight of the fact that this is for a reason. Yes, yeah. So it's not it's not a piece of creative fiction necessarily, is it? It's, it, it is actually a a playbook or something that you have to use functionally. Which I think some of the RSR stuff's quite good at. I know we we've had discussions with various people over the weekends, and we do we've had expressed some. Um, certainly, me and Kerry, for example, I was speaking to him, were a bit. Uh, and maybe Mike and some others, but we weren't quite sure, or we're not quite sure quite what it is that a lot of people get out of OSR, and I can't, there, there are some of the publications that we're still not quite sure about that other people think are absolutely fantastic, so there's, obviously there's a taste thing involved and preferences. Um, one of the good things I think you get out of OSR books sometimes, like Thornheim and things like that, is it's just very functional, so that's that's probably a little bit too functional compared to a lot of other things in that it's hard to read because it's a lot of tables and stuff like that. But if you want a product that you use at the table and helps you as a gem, then that's like a really extreme example of that. I think Vordheim's a really good example, actually, because yeah, it completely dispenses with the illusion that this is a book to read. It is entirely a book to use at the table. Yeah, you're not going to spend... I mean, maybe... I think I probably did spend quite a long time reading them tables, but um, <laughs> I think it's more—it's more likely that that, that Vornheim is is there at the, at the tabletop, isn't it? It's there to be used. Yeah. I mean, the Apocalypse World variations are, are similar, actually, aren't they? They've got—they're uh, endlessly entertaining, but they're very usable things. Mm. They're—they're you know the play that playbook design in general is like a iterate, you know, it's an evolution of the character sheet to make it far more useful at the table, but probably doesn't make for a very fun read. A thrilling read, right. no, not necessarily. And you're not supposed to read it per se; you're supposed to use it and get on with it. And... Yeah. That's when you read it, is when you've rolled a d20 to see what's on the dead body or something like that. So you've recently done a writing course. Do you think there's anything sort of on that that would inform role-playing writing or you would have done differently now that you've sort of been through a bit of an experience? Or is it just kind of just refine some of the ideas that you had out already sort of thing as you were writing along? You've learned through experience of just doing it. I think, well, yeah, I did, yeah, I did a um, MA at University of East Anglia recently. And um, actually part of that is um, interesting because it's, in a similar way to conventions, actually, because you're thrown into it's only thrown into a situation where you're with another dozen, uh, I was about to say players, another dozen writers, <laughs> uh, human beings who are, um, are all from different backgrounds and all writing very different styles, and just that exposure to a lot of uh, different genres all at once is very liberating. I'm not sure there's anything I directly apply to uh, role play games or um, that respect. It's just the fact that it's helped me hone my writing craft. I think. I think when I return to writing role-play games, I'll definitely bring some of that with me. And some of the... I've been doing an awful lot of research into ancient history and writing biographies of fascinating Roman characters. I just can't wait to use a lot of that at the table. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so if, nothing, if nothing else, I've got a whole new gamut of things to use. Yeah, that's... Incidentally, that's one of the great things we'd say. We kind of went through the, the Museum Island in Berlin. You can kind of get a ticket that lets you go around like about five different museums. So... I did nothing but take photos of marble busts of statues. I can use them as characters in my next Cadillac Investors game because I use marble heads of statues rather than actual pictures of people. Yeah, you've got your next two dozen characters sheets, so absolutely. But I mean, they were that's that's actually a really good example of using um, kind of looking sideways at 
um, some of this material, isn't it? Mm. That, that there's an awful lot of inspiration to be got in other sources. And I mean, I wouldn't have necessarily instantly leapt at marble busts, but some of those, there's some great characters there, weren't mm. there? Certainly some of the phrases as well of like a thing that was happening. You're kind of like, that looks an interesting situation. I don't know how we got yeah, here yeah. and how we get out of yeah, it. Yeah, there was that, uh, I think it was in the Pergamon Museum, wasn't it? There was the uh, that lion hunt where it's that was clearly an adventuring party wasn't it two of them on the back of the chariot firing bow and arrow at it and trying to race away from it in their life and two of them the fighters were getting stuck in weren't they with this <laughs> yeah there's a great headshot from one of the fighters and the particularly interesting one was one at the back with not just a spear but a hammer as well to hammer the spear into the line <laughs> yeah, exactly. like i don't know what kind of special move that is or what the penalty is for rolling that but it's it seems like a cool thing to do to a lion. I think he was doing two-handed fighting, wasn't he? He must have And been. certainly, a visit, the, the visit to that museum has left me wanting to do a, a Alexander the Great entering Babylon uh, role-play game. I think, or Call of Cthulhu game, rather. I just want to see what dark cults uh, he uncovers as he heads east and gets corrupted by. Fantastic historical game to be done there. Yeah, definitely. Possibly a subject for a future podcast. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure we'll have to get Dr. Mitch and one or two others along to sort of help with that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a... An inspiration or inspirations you get are going to something like the Kraken or going somewhere else uh, gives you access to things that you don't normally see or do or puts you in a different situation or you get chatted into someone from uh, France about a, a fairy tale or a myth that they've got or something like that. And I think just getting that wider exposure uh, generally, uh, you can do it at home, you can read books, you can look at Wikipedia, whatever else, but getting a broad background or looking into historical or different culture subjects is a real rich field for giving you imaginative things to do in your games, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm I'm pumped for gaming after the Kraken. I'm I'm yeah. I want to I want to buy uh, pick up Tales from the Loop. I think that will go down a storm with my non role playing group of friends. I think that's actually they've been um, talking to me for ages about running them a game, and I think that's the perfect one to run. Uh, I want to. Um, I'm starting a new Delta Green campaign with my home group, and having played in Ralph's um, Phenomenon X uh, Delta Green game, I can't wait to set Phenomenon X on them to cause troubles for them yeah I, re- I really wish i'd done it but something like that i, I, I keep looking at it and i really should but uh, to explain a little bit more they're kind of like the news crew right that kind of follow yeah they're, yeah definitely in the yeah they're, they're tech video of flying saucers and uh, the yet and yetis and things like that and actually you're trying to save the world from cthulhu and they keep trying to get in your way and expose you i think that's a really neat idea and that's sort of taking a pop culture thing like these sort of ghost hunters and all the rest that you have on tv on dave and other like low, low quality channels but just bringing some real world element like that again, I think it's like something for them that you just learnt about in the real world, but sticking it in a Delta Green game that is a familiar thing, but then a real sort of like different surprise or something. Those sort of ideas and inspiration, I think, really sort of add some depth to a game, and I think that's probably something that um, I've picked up at the crack, in particular. We've, we've had a few of those in the scenarios, like people seem to stick extra bits in that you're not expecting. It's easy to go kind of like the the normal route, sorry, with a Cthulhu scenario or a Delta Green scenario or whatever else, but it's, it's bringing that extra thing in that nobody else thinks about, like the home life or a film crew that turns the lights on as you're trying to investigate a room in the dark and all these other things that might add Extra bits and pieces like that um, really add texture to a game and, and fill it out a bit more. And I think as in life in general, when you spend time with people who are really good at their craft, whether that's games mastering or writing or uh, whatever, you just get exposed to all these different ideas and you get to see how other people do it and it's great i mean it's one of the things i'm slightly disappointed at is i only got to play in two other people's games yours and ralph's mm. because actually i love playing in other games versus games because you see how they do it but equally flip that over i got to see 30 or so players over the weekend and and how each of them run, uh, play their characters and how they do different things and it's great to be able to 
you know, take take ideas either for when you're writing and, you know, writing with them in mind, you know, as a sample of the audience, or whether you're playing yourself in games and you're thinking, well, actually, I'm going to use that trick. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah, it's great. I mean, that's just, what better reason is there to go to conventions and to... It's kind of where role play, isn't it, for them, for those kinds of experiences. So what else What else can we talk about about the Kraken? I think probably we have to just give some thanks to Fabian. Uh, we've mentioned various other people there, but he's sort of like the backbone of the convention and, and does an, an excellent job of, of running things. It was good this time to go a couple of days early and actually get a chance to speak to him because he himself has been like friends with Sandy Peterson for going on 20, 30 years, something like that. So he's got stories from when he was like 14, 15 and, <laughs> you know, man and boy and, and been around a lot of these guests of honour and various other people. So excellent to be able to sort of chat to him about gaming and life in general and, and that sort of thing and get a bit more out of it. But, you know, mainly thanks to him for keep running this excellent gaming retreat because it's, you know, fantastic event. And he runs it to such a great level, doesn't he? The, the amount of hours he must put in. I mean, just the Kraken itself. You never see him stopping, do you? No. I don't think I've even seen him eat at the Kraken. <laughs> That's the true, Kraken. actually. Occasionally, late at night. Late at night, maybe. Late at night, you'll get to see him having a beer. Um, but then the, the endless hours he must spend before the convention getting that ready because it is, I mean, just like the design of it, the, the stuff you get in your welcome pack. Yes. It's impeccable, isn't it? It's beautiful. It's so, yeah, yeah so yeah, beautifully designed and also designed with the audience in mind, isn't it? It's all designed with usability. Like the, the stat plan of what's what's on where and when in the weekend has space for you to write your own. You know, what you're running at that game, what you're playing at that time. So that's usability. That is what we were talking about. Absolutely. And, and credit to uh, Claudia's lovely wife, who was a graphic designer, so she invented all the uh, embossed signature and stuff like that. But that's like a really... Um, like I've still got all mine going back all the years, but it just feels like a little bit of an artifact that you get as well that gives you a bit of a, a souvenir for the thing and, and adds to the overall texture of the event that you've been to. So, so yeah, well done to Fabian and obviously all the other people we already mentioned and anybody we haven't that we've forgotten about. Certainly, this, the, yeah, they all they all they all contributed to an amazing week, haven't they? Yeah, and all the GMs and players as well. I mean, we we sort of ran tons of games, but the, you know we weren't well alone by any chance. You know, by any stretch rather. There's plenty of other people running all kinds of stuff and playing and, you know, really yeah, good group of people. There was never a dull moment, was there? There was always something going on. And that's, yeah, that's people doing it off their own backs, isn't it? People they are not paid to be there, kind of giving up their time to really make it work, whether that's the volunteers or the GMs or the, play, the players. I mean, everyone contributes, don't they? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And they're the Kraken more than, more than most, I think. So, it certainly, it certainly uh, spoiled me when it comes to games conventions. <laughs> so there's your call to arms, people. If you run a convention, an event, a one-day thing, um, do more. Do, get volunteers, get involved. We're all really super excited about everything that everybody does throughout the UK and beyond. Uh, and these kind of events really inspire people to play more, run more, and write more. And that can only be for the good. Well, thanks for your time, Andrew. And, Thank you uh, for having me. I shall see you again next year, if not before, for more of the fun at the Kraken.